0: you are a completely innocent person i want to emphasize that for what is about to happen to you is a terrifying nightmare you're driving in your car on a houston highway the police stop you they open up the trunk and discover a wig and a ski mask you say rightly they're part of a halloween costume but the police arrest you anyway and put you on trial for murder The ensuing court trial is bizarre, six complete strangers stand there and say that you killed somebody and they saw you. You don't know what they're talking about, but the court finds you guilty. Then you lose your appeal and now you're in prison for a crime that you did not commit and you're looking at decades in jail. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crime Waves. My name is Declan Hill. I'm a professor of investigations here at the University of New Haven. And each week, myself and my student producers, and this week, it's Eric Krebs, Aaron Griffin, and Liz Wakes, we investigate the investigators. And today, we're examining an infamous case where the authorities got precisely the wrong person. Our guide is a Crime Waves regular, Professor Angie Ambers, and her passion is the identification of human remains, but it's also the fight for truth and justice in criminal forensic science. And she was instrumental in stopping the nightmare of an innocent man in jail for a crime that he didn't commit. Angie, thank you so much for coming again on Crime Waves. Welcome to the program.
1: My pleasure. Glad to be here.
0: Angie, tell us what happened on that evening outside the Bloor Bar in December 2010.
1: Okay. so Yeah, this was a murder that occurred in Houston, Texas, specifically in what's known as the Montrose District, um, outside of a bar called Club Blur. And Aaron Shearhorn, actually the victim, had, um, had an altercation uh, blocks away from Club Blur um, with an African-American male. And had been stabbed multiple times. And he managed to get away from the perpetrator and took off running. And he ran up to the entrance of Blur Bar and where two bouncers were standing. And he raised up his shirt to show them that he had been stabbed multiple times. And he was begging the bouncers to let him inside the bar for protection for asylum. And ultimately- He's essentially
0: looking for sanctuary, Angie. He's looking for, please, there's some guy he's stabbed me already. Help me.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's begging for his life. He knows if this this man catches up with him and and stabs him additional times, he's he's probably going to lose his life. And ultimately, they did not allow him inside the bar. And during the debate or the argument about letting him inside, the perpetrator caught up with him and the attack ensued and he continued to be stabbed multiple more times and ultimately died in the parking lot just outside of the club entrance. And there were multiple eyewitnesses.
0: I was just going to ask that. How many people are watching this murder take place in effectively slow motion?
1: So, yeah. So that's one of the interesting things. When I first got involved in this case, one of the things that intrigued me or or I should say troubled me about this case is that there were six eyewitnesses. To this stabbing, you know, it wasn't a single stabbing; it was multiple stabs over and over and over again. And what what struck me when I was reading the original case file was that of these six eyewitnesses, not a single one of them tried to intervene and help Aaron Shearhorn. Neither did they try to um, detain the perpetrator. So after the stabbing was complete and Aaron Shearhorn was laying in the parking lot dying, the perpetrator ran off, and nobody attempted to detain him for law enforcement.
0: So let, and let's just recap what these wonderful witnesses did not do. First of all, two of the bouncers wouldn't let a bleeding man who said help let me just get in here into the sanctuary of their club or even phoned, you know, and and and, and did anything. Nor did they anybody try to stop the eventual murderer from stabbing this person in front of six people's eyes. Nor did they take in this world of, you know, smartphones camera, videos, photos, he didn't do any of this kind of stuff. So what happened next with these six witnesses? What did they next do that even further compounded the problem?
1: So, you know, my assumption when I read this original case file was that the eyewitnesses um, likely were maybe intoxicated. This was a a weekend um, in, a, in a bar district and a club district in Houston. And um, so not only were they later to become eyewitnesses that identified Lydell Grant as the perpetrator, but they were likely intoxicated at the time. And so several days after the murder, one of those eyewitnesses Saw our client, Lydell Grant, out and about in Houston and thought to himself, oh, that, you know, that looks like the guy that I watched stab Aaron Shearhorn in the parking lot of Club Blur last week. And so this individual called Crime Stoppers, which is an anonymous tip line that most cities across the U.S. have where they can call in and provide anonymous tips to the police to help them solve criminal cases. And what this individual did was he followed Lydell to his car and took a snapshot of his license plate on his car and called Crime Stoppers and, re- and said, I saw the, the man that committed this murder and here's his license plate number. And so that's when a warrant went out for Lydell's arrest. Search which, brings for
0: us, which brings us to this infamous traffic stop where an innocent man is driving along and the police stop him. And then they run his license and they check in his trunk and discover a Halloween wig and mask. And then he gets arrested. And he's placed on trial for murder. Tell us a little bit about that trial. We'll speak more about the DNA evidence at that trial, but what happens at that trial?
1: Yeah, so um if you if you read the court transcripts, the trial transcripts, he he essentially was convicted on eyewitness identification. They did have DNA evidence in the case. They had um, scraped the fingernails of Aaron Shearhorn, the victim, during autopsy and performed DNA testing on those fingernails with the, you know, kind of with with the rationale that he struggled and fought for his life and likely scratched um, the perpetrator during the attack and therefore some of the perpetrator's DNA might be underneath the fingernails. They were able to at the time of the original trial, they they were able to retrieve a DNA mixture, a mixture of DNA from more than one individual from the victim's fingernails. But at the time, the data that the DNA mixture data that was generated was too complex to interpret. And,
0: and so they And heard, let's, and let's before we get into the DNA evidence, let's 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 paint the big picture because there's a massive elephant in the room that we haven't discussed. And as we're recording this particular episode of Crime Waves, all across America, indeed, in many cities and places around the world, people are protesting about the killing of a Black man by police. And this is one of those cases where race plays such a prominent role that we've got to talk about it. Lytle Grant, the man who is now on trial in a Texas courtroom, Is black, the victim was white, and and much of the much of the elements around it are are about race, and and sadly, much of it is also about economics. In that this black man is a poor black man and really can't afford decent legal system. Again, I'm I'm not a politically correct man, but this evidence is so strong that this influenced the case. Let's talk a little bit about that, Angie. I get down from my soap soap soapbox, but this is clearly a racial socioeconomic challenge case?
1: Yeah, so, so there's two factors here related to race and socioeconomic status that I think are important. So the first one involves the eyewitness identification. So I mentioned previously that six eyewitnesses identified Lydell as the perpetrator And they testified to that in front of the jury during the original trial. Um, Again, Lydell Grant is an African-American male, and the eyewitnesses were not of the same race. So they were not African-American. And we know, um, you know, if you look at the research and the flaws of eyewitness identification, it's flawed to begin with, but it's even more unreliable when... The race of the eyewitness and the race of the perpetrator are different. And that was exactly what happened in this case. So you had non-African-American eyewitnesses identifying an African-American man. The and other- presumably,
0: to, to, to be clear about that, guys that may have been intoxicated and who were trying to make identification hours, days later.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, add to the fact that human memory is not always perfect, but add alcohol into the mix and, and perhaps, I don't know, other other um, substances. It makes it even more unreliable. So, you know, Lydell had to sit. I've, I've talked to him several times about this. He had to sit um, behind the defense table during this trial watching One person, two people, three people, six people get on the witness stand and point at him and say, yes, that's the man that stabbed Aaron Shearhorn to death. The other factor that I think uh, played a large role in Lydell's conviction, other than faulty eyewitness identification, is, you know, he could not afford, he wasn't O.J. Simpson, he couldn't afford a really high-powered attorney. So he was appointed um, a public defender to handle his case. And this public defender never hired a DNA expert like myself, someone like myself, to review the DNA evidence that was presented during trial. Do you want me to talk about the testimony? So,
0: So he loses the case. He's put in jail. There's an appeal a couple of years later because the defense that he's able to say, says, hey, look, you arrested him on the grounds of a Halloween mask and a wig, and it had nothing to do with it. But that appeal gets turned down. And Lytle Grant is facing years in prison, a life sentence for a crime that he did not commit. Let's flash forward several years. Angie, you're sitting in a cold, snowbound Connecticut house. You're looking at the case files, the, the papers and documents. Tell us as you were looking through those, those papers, what your initial reaction was? And, and, and again, this is years after all this has gone down.
1: So actually, yeah, so to go a little bit further back in the story, um, when I was originally asked to work this case, I still lived in Texas, and I was in the process of packing up and moving across the country to Connecticut. And so when Mike Ware, the director of the Innocence Project, who I've worked on multiple other cases with, approached me to work on this case, you know, I I really at the time thought, you know, I'm getting ready to move across country. I don't have time to do this case. If I if I tell him, you know, I, I don't have time to do it, he'll find someone else to help. And I thought he would forget about it and leave me alone. And my, Mike Ware has helped get numerous people out of prison over the years. And lo and behold, he gave me a little break. He allowed me to move up to Connecticut and get settled. And I moved to Connecticut in December of 2018. And then he um, texted me again and started emailing me and saying, take a look at this case file, take a look at this case file. And being from Originally from down south and never having lived above the, the Mason-Dixon line, I wasn't used to a, a harsh winter, and so I was snowed in here in Connecticut with nothing to do.
0: I'm just <laughs> shaking I, my head. I, I'm from Canada, and <laughs> I've got a certain sympathy, but it's pretty limited for somebody complaining about a Connecticut winter. But 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 carry on. We we have more important things to talk about, like I, I, how I, you were able to get an innocent man out of prison.
1: Yeah, I mean, I live in Litchfield County, so 12 to 16 inches of snow is is paralyzing for me. <laughs> But, um, anyway, I was, you know, I thought, well, you know, what can I do? I'm snowed in. Let me just, out of curiosity, let me start taking a look at this case file. And in my mind, I thought, you know, it's going to take me 10, 15, 20 minutes and I'll be able to see right away that, you know, maybe this guy's truly guilty and I can just call my queer and tell him you don't have a case and it would be over with. And it actually only took me 10 or 15 minutes um, into reviewing the DNA evidence in the case to get really intrigued. And I, you know, I started going, whoa, wait a second. I'm sitting in the floor in my living room um, with the the papers, with the case file spread out, and I'm looking at the DNA evidence. And, and it was blatantly obvious to me that this man's DNA was not present in the DNA mixture that was recovered from the murder victim's uh, fingernails.
0: Wow. So as an as an expert in in DNA and these kind of things, you can tell that quickly just from looking at a case file, this is something wrong.
1: Well, you know, I had, I had the DNA profile of the victim and I had the DNA profile of Lydell Grant. And then I had the the mixture of DNA that was recovered from the murder victim's fingernails. And what was kind of strikingly obvious from the get-go is there are a lot of components, a lot of what we call alleles in the DNA profile of this mixture that are not only not consistent with the murder victim, which you would expect his DNA to be in there because it's his fingernails, but they were also not consistent with Lydell Grant's true DNA profile. So it was very obvious that we had a known male contributor in the DNA mixture. So I called Mike Ware, again, the director of the Innocence Project of Texas, and I had to kind of put my tail between my legs and say, I think you're onto something here. And um, that's kind of how the whole process started.
0: Ellis, uh, there are many people listening around the world who don't know what the Innocence Project is. Let's take a step back from the Lydell Grant case for a moment and explain to people what the Innocence Project is and my, what Mike's work is.
1: So the Innocence Project is a group of, it's a nonprofit organization. It's generally a group of attorneys that review post-conviction cases. So case files of people that have already been convicted and sent to prison, and they look for flaws in, um, in the cases that might have resulted in a wrongful conviction. And usually the cases that they're reviewing are cases that are brought to their attention by the inmates themselves. So people that are in prison will write letters to the Innocence Project and say, hey, I'm innocent. I need your help. You know, can, you re- can you take on my case? And as you can imagine, the Innocence Project gets you know, thousands and thousands of letters per year, and they can only take on a few of those cases because it's a lot of work um, to get someone out of prison. It's been wrongfully convicted.
0: So you make that phone call to Mike Weir, the, the head of the Innocence Project in Texas, And you say, "Hang on a second. There's something very wrong about this." What happens next?
1: So I, so he, you know, he was pretty excited at that point. He said, "Let's go ahead and file the writ, the the appeal." And I explained to him that, you know, even though it was obvious to me, to a trained DNA analyst, that um, Lydell Grant's DNA was not in the mixture. That's not actually how we analyze DNA mixtures in casework. We, instead of having a human DNA analyst look at the mixture, what we do now is we take the raw data that was generated and we upload it into a computer software program and let the computer software program do the interpretation. So we've moved into that artificial intelligence, that AI era with DNA interpre- ter- interpretation of complex DNA mixtures. And so I said to him, wait, you know, let's not, let's not file the appeal yet. Let's send this Raw data from this DNA mixture that was recovered from the victim 's fingernails to a company called cybergenetics in Pennsylvania, and cybergenetics makes a computer software program called Trubalil, and it will deconvolute or separate separate out the DNA in a DNA mixture into its individual profiles and that's what we did
0: this I presume, is the kind of thing that is better to have a a a computer, an algorithm, a machine doing it because there's less chance of human subjectivity.
1: Yeah. So for the law, up until honestly, up until the past couple of years, say around 2016, a big uh, report came out on um, kind of an analysis or overview of the strengths and weaknesses of the various forensic science disciplines. And what this report in 2016 said is that the, the instrumentation, the techniques that we use in the laboratory to analyze DNA are solid and valid. But the way we interpret the data sometimes is flawed because humans, you know, there's some level of subjectivity in, in data interpretation. Obviously, there's scientific foundation and training behind it. But when you're analyzing a DNA mixture,
0: it's still that- a human being that's interpreting. it. this is a great segue back to the original trial. Because at that original trial, setting aside the false witness statements, not that the witnesses were genuinely giving false testimony, but they were wrong, completely wrong, and the poverty of the defendant, there was DNA testimony there. What? How could have they got that wrong? What, what, what happened at that trial, in, in your opinion?
1: So, you know, aside from reviewing the actual DNA results, I usually also, for context, I read the trial transcripts so I can see how the testimony was laid, laid out, what the different expert witnesses said to the jury about the DNA evidence. And in this case, the prosecution, the state had their own DNA expert witness. The defense attorney never called a DNA expert witness, which I think could have perhaps planted reasonable doubt in the jury's mind and might not have resulted in Lydell's conviction. But what happened with the state's expert, the the DNA expert from the lab in Houston, I think, quite frankly, I think She did the right thing in the beginning by erring on the side of being conservative. She looked at the DNA mixture that was obtained from the fingernails, and she basically said, whoa, you know, this is too complex to interpret. So rather than writing in my formal report that Lydell-Grant is included or excluded from the mixture, I'm just going to be conservative and say it's inconclusive. It's too complex to interpret. It's inconclusive, which in my opinion, again... Was the correct move at the time, because remember, this was in 2011, before we were us- actually using these computer software programs to interpret mixtures.
0: But at the trial, the prosecution twisted that in a way. What did, how were they able to do that?
1: Yeah, so it's it's quite interesting. It, to me, inconclusive is inconclusive. We're not going to draw any conclusions at all. <laughs> That's to me the definition of inconclusive. But what happened was she said that on the stand. She said it's inconclusive. We weren't able to draw any conclusions. And then the prosecutor continued to probe her on the stand and said, okay, well, so then you can't technically say, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, so you can't technically say that Lydell Grant's DNA is not in that mixture. And she said, correct, which kind of left the door open, I think, for the jury to say, oh, well, you know, we've got six eyewitnesses that are saying it was him. And now this DNA expert on the stand and the prosecutor are saying his DNA could possibly be in that DNA mixture. You know, in my opinion, she should have said, I can't say either way. It's inconclusive. She should have continued to reiterate the inconclusive statement. But so he kinda... that was
0: that was, a, that was another human subjectivity issue. The first one was you got a, a poor black man there who can't afford a good legal representation. The second one is the subjective nature, the cross-examination of the DNA evidence. But there's another one. There's another. This is one of those cases where there's a whole bunch of elephants in the room. And that is the fact that the poor victim, the man who was murdered, stabbed multiple times, was a homosexual. And I I really don't like to bring up people's sexuality unless it's relevant. And it was relevant in this particular case because of the way the evidence was handled because it was assumed him being homosexual would in some ways affect his sexuality or something. Please, please tell our listeners what that was all about.
1: So yeah, so Aaron Shearhorn, the victim, was, you know, openly homosexual. To this day, I don't know if Lydell Grant is. It's not a it's not something that's relevant to me. It's but, it's not
0: relevant at all. Please keep going. But,
1: but what happened in this case that was pretty astounding to me is that we had gone through all of this um, time and effort to have this DNA mixture that was recovered from Mr. Shearhorn's fingernails analyzed by a computer software program by a company in Pennsylvania. And not only were the results from that analysis that Lydell Grant definitively was excluded. His DNA was not present in that mixture. But we were able to deduce the DNA profile of the unknown contributor in that mixture because we knew Aaron Sherhorn's DNA profile, so we could subtract his DNA from that mixture and deduce the profile of the unknown contributor. And we went back to the state of Texas at that point and said, basically, okay, we're going to file an appeal now. We've proven that our client Lydell Grant is not guilty because it's not, we've proven definitively that it's not his DNA underneath the victim's fingernails. And the response to that was, so what? So what it's not his DNA underneath the murder victim's fingernails. We have six eyewitnesses that have identified him and the victim was homosexual. And he may have had a sexual encounter earlier that evening prior to being stabbed to death and the DNA that you found of the unknown male from underneath his fingernails is probably a male that he had a sexual encounter with earlier that evening.
0: And of course, the assumption being he is gay, therefore he must be promiscuous, therefore he must have had sex with somebody else, as opposed to, hang on a second, what is this? So you've now, you and the Innocence Project have now identified that Lytle Grant is not the person who killed how do you go about identifying the actual murderer? How do you do that?
1: So, we knew that we needed the name of this person, that this unknown male contributor that was underneath the murder victim's fingernails. And so, we worked with, we continued to work with cybergenetics, Dr. Mark Perlin, who's the chief scientific officer there, and he has a, a friend in Beaufort County, South Carolina who is a CODIS administrator and CODIS is the FBI's DNA database. And so we thought, well, we have the profile of this unknown male, this unknown person. Let's search that against the FBI's DNA database and see if he's in the database. And and I should mention that, you know, part of the that was a gamble because part of the issue with the FBI's CODIS DNA database is that it's vastly incomplete. You know, this database only contains the DNA profiles of convicted offenders, so people that have been caught and in some states, arrestees, and so, but we still wanted to see, you know, is this guy in the database, and so we got permission to have the CODA search done, and we we got a hit, we get we got what's called a hit in the database to a man named Jermerico Carter, who had been in, obviously, he was a convicted offender, he had been in the system before, and through our own independent investigation, we realized, or we discovered that Jamerico Carter had lived in the Houston area at the time of Mr. Shearhorn's murder, and he had moved away from Houston shortly after Lydell's conviction.
0: So you've got Lydell Grant technically shown that he's innocent. You've got a name of a potential other murderer. You would think at this point the state of Texas is doing a, a jig and saying, "Hey, this is great. Let's move quickly to arrest this person and to let this innocent man out of jail." But that's not what happened. What What did happen?
1: Yeah. Now you know the the justice system values finality, and I think once someone is convicted of a crime, it's it's a constant uphill battle to get anyone to listen to you and potentially overturn that conviction. So, so we, um, we turned over the CODIS hit. We turned over the CODIS results with Jermerico Carter's name on it to the state of Texas. And we thought, you know, right away, they're going to rush out. They're going to issue a warrant for Mr. Carter and rush out and arrest him. And, and we'll finally have resolution with this. And that's not what happened. I mean, several months went by, after we had turned over Jamerico Carter's name to the Houston police and the Houston DA's office. And we got really frustrated because, you know, we thought you're pretty much telling us that we have to find this man and get a confession or prove that, you know, he was involved in this crime before Lydell's appeal is going to be successful. And so Mike Ware, the director of the Innocence Project of Texas, was at the point where he was going to use Innocence Project funds to hire a private investigator to locate and find Mr. Carter so that we could pass that information along to the police so the police could arrest him. And ultimately, um, you know, again, fast forward several months, the police did locate Mr. Carter in Atlanta, Georgia, and arrested him. And he confessed to the murder. And I will tell you that that was such a relief to us, those of us that were working on Lydell's case, because at that point we thought, oh, you know, what if they do find him and arrest him? And then he says exactly what the presumption was. What if he says, I'm a, I'm a gay man and I had a sexual encounter with Aaron Shearhorn the same evening he was murdered? Then, then it's that explanation against the fact that six eyewitnesses identified Lydell. We, we probably... But, he didn't.
0: but he, didn't. And, he didn't. And let's not go into that red herring of, of somebody's sexuality, because I really want to avoid that, because I don't want to play into that, 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 that I, utterly, that utter issue. But your work, let's concentrate on the positive. Your work has not only released an innocent man, it's also got the right man convicted work that has done genuine good. I'm going to step back a little from this specific case, the Lydell Grant case and all your hard work and all the Innocence Project hard work and ask you, did you come into this field, this field of forensics with the same views on the legal system that you have now? Tell us a little bit about that that process.
1: Um, no, the answer is no, and and I've been quite introspective over the years, and and my situation and my belief system is even quite interesting to me because, you know, I grew up in a very conservative area of the country, and I was very pro criminal justice, pro death penalty, when I was younger, when I was in my teens and early twenties, and I actually did my my first master's thesis on the death penalty and how it should be used in all states. I was a proponent of it. Um, I was.
0: And what do you say now, now having seen this up front and close, what's your thoughts on the death penalty?
1: um, You know, it never, I'll say this, it never occurred to me when I was younger, when I was a student and when I was learning how to be a forensic scientist and when I was studying criminal justice, it never occurred to me that sometimes we get it wrong. You know, I just I had this idealistic view of the criminal justice system. And I thought, well, if they've formally charged someone, if they've formally indicted some with someone with a crime, they must have, you know, an astronomical amount of evidence against this person that proves their guilt. And I, you know, I held that belief for, you know, over a decade. And then the more this kind of shines the light on the value of education, I think the more you educate yourself on a topic and the more you immerse yourself in the actual justice system and how it actually works and how it's run by humans who are inherently flawed and biased that we do you know we do need people we do need forensic experts that work on the opposing side and and I'll say something about education which I try to do I've tried to kind of fix this in my own classes at the University of New Haven is I think when when students I can speak for my own education when students are being trained to be forensic scientist there's an undertone of you're training to to help get bad people off the streets you know you're almost kind of trained in the prosecutorial bend in the education system like no one ever explicitly said to me in any of my classes that I would be working for the prosecution but that was the undertone and the opposing side the 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 chances or the the examples of us the times that we've got it wrong weren't really presented at least in my educational experience and so you know it's very much you step into the field thinking i work for the prosecutor and the police to help get bad people off the street and quite frankly part of the flaw in the in the US criminal justice system is that the vast majority of forensic science laboratories in the US are affiliated with a district attorney's office or a police a police department or a sheriff's office and so it's difficult i think for a lot of forensic scientists to remain an unbiased scientist when when you actually work for a lab that's coupled to a police department or the guy's office. And,
0: and by the way, Angie, both of you and I know this, but I just want to make sure that our listeners know, this is not an anti-police thing. We we know personally and professionally many fantastic investigators who who's, who has tremendous problems and resources and all kinds of, of issues and would not support this kind of murder that, you know, the whole country is now de- discussing of an innocent person being caught. Or this kind of stuff that we've discussed today. So this is not an anti-police thing. It's not an anti-district attorney thing, but it's that underlying bias in a science that can, in a case like Lytle Grant, really have a significant effect.
1: Yeah. And I think you're you're absolutely correct. I mean, I work for both sides. I work for the prosecution and the defense. And, and quite frankly, the vast majority of post-conviction cases that I've reviewed, that I've consulted on, the police and the attorneys have gotten it correct.
0: Um, to, to be clear, you don't work for the defense or the prosecution. You work for science. You work for the truth. That's what you're trying to get out.
1: Yeah. I mean, I like to say I'm not pro-prosecution or pro-defense. I'm pro-justice and pro-truth because yes. I think that's ultimately what we should all view our roles as, as a forensic scientist.
0: The the invitation to Lytle himself is out there. Uh, to come on Crimeways. We're really hoping to have him uh, come and join us. But his words of an incredible miscarriage of justice that affected the, the court system and was relieved by your work and many other people. So thank you, Angie, for your work on this particular case. And thank you for coming on Crimeways.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed.
0: Hey, it's Declan. Thank you so much. On behalf of Liz Wiggs, myself, and the entire Crime Waves broadcast team, we ask you that you just do the normal things on social media. So if you like the episode, like it, promote it, or subscribe to our channel, it's very, very much appreciated. Thanks again for your time and for joining us on Crime Waves.